Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, the podcast where we learn from cybersecurity experts how to stay safe, private, and secure on the cloud and in code. CSCP is hosted by Francesco Cipollone, your cybersecurity friend with a passion for all things cyber and sharing stories of other professionals with you. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. Today, we have one of my favorite person in the world returning into the podcast, Jim Manico, a good friend, an application security pillar in the industry. Jim, talk a little bit more about the background for who of the few people that doesn't know the wonderful person that you are. Ciao, Francesco. Uh, Ciao. Thank you for having me on your podcast. (laughs) My name is Jim. I've been a programmer professionally for about 25 years, mostly web apps. And and I've been an OWASP volunteer for a long time. I work on the one of the co-leads of the Application Security Verification Standard. I'm really proud to be on that project. There's a lot of other people working on it. I'm one of many, but it's a big honor to be in the leader group of the SVS standard. I work on the OWASP Cheat Sheet series with Jacob Mikowski. And that's that's like a like kind of the old wiki. We we maintained a bunch of secure coding guides mostly on a on a topic by topic basis with about a hundred different volunteers. And I work on the Proactive Controls Project. This is like a top 10 for defense. I love OWASP. I love to contribute. I've learned a lot from OWASP. And and I focus on secure coding defense knowledge as my my main job and and interest in the industry. Fantastic. And since we're on the subject of OWASP and and history, you know, that the new new top 10 that is probably the the most famous one that has been published has been uh, republished of of late. And you might know top 10 slightly (laughs) for obvious reason. (laughs) Yeah, we we made sure at the Cheat Sheet series, we released a, a, a Cheat Sheet top 10 so you can see how all of the OWASP top 10 topics will map to all the many cheat sheets on secure coding that we have at the cheat sheet series. So I was part of the, I was part of the, one of the secondary volunteers helping with the OWASP top 10. And I, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. By the way, I'm going to do a call out, Francesco. Everyone, please email jack at nvisium.com. Jack Menino. He does not think the OWASP top 10 is reasonable or useful. And all of us need to email him and let him know that you love the OWASP top 10. His name is Jack <laughs> at nvisium.com. He's an OWASP top 10 naysayer. Help me out. Inform him of your love, like mine, of the OWASP top 10 2021. Great, great piece of work from Andrew Vanderstock, Torsten Giggler, um, Neil Smithline, and uh, one other person I forgot. Forget Brian Glass, the <laughs> scientist. Brian Glass. <laughs> It's an amazing top 10 list, stirred a lot of great conversation, brought design and threat modeling back into the into the top 10. Yes. I'm a big fan. Secure design, secure design or secure misconfiguration or, or design misconfiguration. I think I think it was missing. I think AppSec uh, needed that, absolutely needed that, needed that return on the mentality of how do we build things securely rather than just how do we react because a lot of a lot of right now, you know, the scanners, you know, the, the tooling will throw you all a top 10 kind of vulnerability level for compliance. That is good because I think it brought, OWASP originally brought um, application security and a lot of compliance in a lot of things, despite the fact not being a standard. 
but it's the de facto yeah, kind de of facto. guideline. <laughs> yeah, it's the de facto guideline of you know how to do how to start in application security. What can go wrong or categories? And Francesco, I, I've had a lot of negative things to say about the new fourth category, secure design. I've been usually pretty negative about threat modeling in the past because I've sat in so many really bad, useless threat modeling meetings, and I just I, and I got burnt on it. Now, but lately, what what I, what I think is a cr- a crucial part of good threat modeling is to have a series of, of vetted reference architectures you're going to map against. If you're just if you've got some AppSec knowledge and you're going to go into a threat modeling meeting and fumble around, I'm not a fan of that. But if you have a plan, here's like a dozen different architectures we should map against. Here's standards we should map against. Here's like expectations we should map against. And I find threat modeling to be a lot more useful. A lot of threat models are going to say, well, let's just be loosey-goosey and figure things out. No, I don't agree. How about clear process reference architectures to map against a clear set a clear model a list of vulnerabilities or or weaknesses to map against and really go in there hyper prepared and now i like secure design that flop around threat modeling i'm i'm not a fan of that and that's what my comments have been about but i think as you can see threat modeling and secure design has matured a lot in our industry in the last couple of years what do you think i agree I agree. No, I absolutely agree on, on the consistency because a lot of threat modeling exercise has been inconsistent and that leaves inconsistent result and inconsistent risk assessment. And then ultimately it doesn't get taken seriously and hence why threat modeling tends to fall. And it's a fumble around of like, let's let's use some stuff and let's threat model something. And it traditionally doesn't bring even the business context into place that I think is a big issue of threat modeling, how it's been done till now. Because, you know, you can threat model the hell out of something that is completely inaccessible and unusable while, you know, you have your main website where all the transactions come along, they maybe need a little bit more attention and carefulness. And I think that's that's the real threat modeling is when you do with business people. I'm with you 100%. I, I think that's a the great philosophy on it. I was talking to one of the threat modeling managers of one of the top 10 banks and, and what he said to me is, he's like, you know, I've seen a lot of messy threat modeling too here. We've paid a lot of money for messy threat modeling, but what we have done is we've gotten more mature at how to do it as a company. And we had to go through some of those messy, threat, yeah, we had to go through those painful, wasteful threat modeling sessions to understand what was not wasteful. So this is the time for the OWASP Top 10 2021 to add to secure design in. We're mature enough as an industry to recommend it at scale, in my opinion. So I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. I want to throw you a spanner because I did a talk on it yesterday on the CSA on actually how to do this at scale on, on even bringing patents and other things into yes. the, the mix and then how to convert those things from a paper base to actually engineering and coding, how to do this enforcement at scale and baseline at scale. What do you think? I'm with you 100%. I, I, have, I have no comments. I just love it. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do more of it. Let's do more of it. <laughs> and I think and I think that that brings the concept of, you know, secure design from the traditional paper-based exercise, you know, dusty forum of let's debate about a secure architecture while getting into the real world and actually let's make secure architecture. That is messy. For me, secure architecture is messy because you kind yes. of hammer it. It's like code. It needs to be like code. Yeah. <laughs> And, and like speaking of which, if I heard you say secure architecture and simply needs to be like code, well, there are a lot 
a lot more modern tools and, and threat modeling uh, helper tools so we can do threat modeling faster in a repeatable way with standard diagrams and standard artifacts. So this dream that we redo threat modeling in a more agile DevOps fashion with the modern tooling, I think that's a bit more realistic. Doing it old school and manual is never going to fit in an agile world. But with modern threat modeling tooling, and there's dozens of different packages out there and open source, commercial, to aid you in the, the, the diagramming and tracking part of threat modeling, with that kind of automation and expertise in these tools, we could really start to move fast and threat model even small small architectural changes. So, I, I you know, Francesco, I'm kind of here in this podcast to let everyone know that I love threat modeling and I love secure design after talking trash about it for about 10 years. Hey, but I think, I think. I think we're controversial. I think everybody knows that we're controversial and, and we talk shit until that thing becomes usable. I, I, I like to trash things until they make sense from a business perspective. And I think as you rightfully say, Right now, you know, we got into a mature level of build and, and, and test stage, you know, with tooling, with kind of practice, ASVS, standard model, OWASP, top 10. Okay, now we need to fix the other two parts that are kind of hanging in there and hanging loose. And we're getting drowned in secure vulnerability in, in vulnerability and issues. So we need, we need to get ahead of the curve. And the only way to do so, in my opinion, and I might be entirely wrong, is secure design, threat modeling, bring the rest of the organization in and, and bring the architecture team. Architectures. I think this is the biggest piece of threat modeling that I'm going to yell about a lot. Reference architectures. Yeah. Let's have an idea of how we should use microservices, JSON web tokens, standard web apps, uh, you know, end tier design. I mean, all, all the different kind of architectures. You know, I hate the term of reference architecture because it, it tends to be a little bit more dusty. I like the paved way that Netflix has introduced because it 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 takes that concept of very dusty, very uh, puts a painting in the wall of a reference architecture versus a paved way for people to use things securely. I understand, Francesco. Here's why you're wrong. Okay, so. Uh... <laughs> Reference architectures may be a dusty term, but we shouldn't be rethinking how to do jot expiration over and over again. We shouldn't be redesigning microservice from scratch, especially in the big companies. I would hope you have, we we can call it a different name for you. We'll call it, we'll call it, what should we, we'll we'll call it, I don't know what to call it. I'm going to call it reference architecture. I'm sorry. I'm going to call it what it is. Manical architecture. But But especially in a bigger company, I just want the threat modeling teams to have standards, not just low-level technical standards, which is which is my which is my party, right? But also architectural standards. Even okay, reference architecture, Dusty, you don't like it? That's fine. Then how about architectural patterns, patterns or architectural standards? So we're we're not rewriting, we're not refiguring out how to do key architectural things that are impacted by threat modeling over and over again. And that that's how you mature threat modeling. Not You just don't go in and flop. Even if you're smart, you don't go in and smartly flop around. You go in with a plan. You want to plan and you want to move development teams towards standardized, secure reference architecture, reference patterns, architecture patterns, whatever. 
and and push them in a certain direction. I don't. I, so that that that's my take on threat modeling. Please correct me, community, if I'm if I get this wrong. I, I love it and I agree. And I think you know I, I like also the approach of a carrot and a stick. When you say you know this is a paved way, this is a fast track to security approval. This is standard. You know, standard way to deploy an S3 bucket or a standard way to deploy an application in an environment. This is a pattern that is repeatable and has been threat yes. modeled to hell. Yes. And this is a standard way to do authentication. Yes. You can invent the wheel, but you need to go through all the security approval and exception approval. Or you can go to the Ferrari of security and just fucking implement it. <laughs> so Francesco, so you don't like the name uh, reference architecture, but I want to quote no. little Shakespeare for you. Shakespeare, you know what Shakespeare said? <laughs> Shakespeare said, a rose by any other name is still just as sweet. So you may not like the name reference architecture, give it a different name, but that concept of walking in with design patterns for how to do how to solve architectural problems is crucial in the world of threat modeling. And most threat modelers have it in the back of their head. Get that in artifacts. Get that in something that we can all work on together. A, 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 a reference pattern in the in the back of your head is not nearly as useful as one that's on on the table for us to discuss as a team. All right, enough threat modeling. Enough threat modeling. But I think I think you're right, uh, and, and I don't like I don't like the reference architecture just because I've used a lot of reference architecture and it's so abstract sometimes. So patterns, I like it because they're much more usable All and right. I can take some of the patterns and convert it in a snippet of code. That's why I like them. We're on the same page. One of my favorite things about AppSec people is we will agree on something 100% and then debate the nuance of it just to have something to debate. <laughs> sorry, sorry, audience. Sorry, kids. Sorry, children. We, we, I, I apologize. That is because we're Italians. We agree. We agree. We, agree. <laughs> we just, we just want to argue. It's all right. <laughs> but that's security in a nutshell. At least we're not having security info sec drama on, on this kind of conversation. I like this because they add value <laughs> to the conversation. <laughs> We are not debating about a color and a shade of the same thing that we all all, all understand, but let's not go in there. <laughs> but uh, maybe let me ask. Okay, now now we, we kind of fix upsec, or we kind of fix. Uh, or we we have we have a paid way to actually fix things. What do you think is going to be the next big thing that we need to focus on, or, or kind of double down? Here we go. You ready? This is a really important question. I'm going to give you a manicode answer. The answer is. We have all the tools, techniques, frameworks, and understanding and professionals that we need to do good AppSec. It's all in place for us now. What's going to change? What happens next is, are you ready? We actually do it. We know how to threat model. Let's do it. We know how to set up a DevOps security assessment program using SAST, DAST, uh, what else? SAS, DAST, Last software confidence analysis. And if you want to spend a lot of money for to find just injection, then go RASP or IS. Sorry, sorry, kids. So anyways, I'm, I'm being a little snarky, but we know how to do a mature DevOps assessment right now. We understand secure architectures or whatever else you want to call it, Francesco, right? We have all these pieces now. What is going to be the next differentiator, the big change or the big movement is that we actually do these things as an industry at scale. At scale. At, at scale. scale. Like we're, we're like even smaller teams are going to realize that we got to do some threat modeling and secure design. Where actually fixing bugs as a discipline becomes critical in most companies, right? As a muscle, as a muscle, I think. Yes. That's, that's, 
and 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 I hate to call it vulnerabilities because I think vulnerability equals security. What I like to call it is is, is defects, bugs, because they're bugs. They're nothing else than bugs. And, gotcha. and that's we fine. have the discipline, and I think we have the discipline to actually fix bugs already. You know, is is in QA, is in testing, is in the normal DevOps. So why security needs to be something different other than a bug in a backlog? A feature missing is something a customer complains about. But a vulnerability unfixed affects every customer in a destructive way. So I don't call it vulnerabilities, but I heard it called vulnerabilities, weaknesses, defects. But security bugs are special, but they should be fixed in the standard developer pipeline or operation. I I agree with that. I, I get your point, but security bugs do have a special place. Like a lot of my customers will have SLAs with their customers, where if a security bug is revealed, they have a legal agreement to fix it within 72 hours or similar. And I don't see that with other bugs. I just don't. So security bugs, I, I, I get your point. Developers should fix security bugs like any other bug. I agree with that. But at the same time, security bugs from an operational point of view usually have special significance around fixing them. And if we don't, the the damage, what IBM tells us, like every security event, it's like three and a half million dollars. So every bug you know, every, every security incident, we're paying for it more and more these days. So I, I think security is still special, Francesco, and requires special contracts with our customers to make sure we deal with this stuff properly. I like the approach. I like the SLA and, and, and the contractual aspect, uh, how, you, how you frame it, because I think that has value in uh, uh, maybe contextualizing the framework of, you know, fixing things and in the, in the building their muscles. That's how I like it to, to be the same as, but as you rightfully say, yes, I agree. This episode is brought to you by the generosity of AppSec Phoenix Limited. AppSec helps startups and enterprises solve complex software security problems by using smart data aggregation and complex machine learning software. Discover how AppSec Phoenix helps CISO and developers remove friction and maximize the use of DevSecOps professionals at www.appsecphoenix.com. AppSec Phoenix is the new and smart dev-first way to manage your software vulnerability. Follow the tag, hashtag AppSecSmart. Ask me something technical. My Where I shine is like th- this kind of discussion. I'm always happy to dive into it, Francesco, but like it's high level. Like where, where I shine as a professional, I like to get into the nitty and the gritty. Give me something nitty or gritty as one as our last talk. How's that? <laughs> yes. Authentication. Why it is still broken? Woo. It's, it's, I, I think that, if, first of all, what we should look at to understand authentication today, I think I would look at either Daniel Meisler's consumer authentication maturity model. I would also look at, are you ready? NIST special publication 863B. <laughs> that is the digital media framework for US government and companies. And it's 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 really well written. In the world of all things. I never I never I never heard you mentioning that standard in like any conference whatsoever. <laughs> I think I mentioned this this standard like a hundred times a day. Because it gives me a standard definition of levels of authentication, AAL level one, two, and three, normal password, multi-factor, or device FIDO-based authentication mm-hmm. at the three levels. They have different levels for registration assurance, different levels for federation assurance. They give me a workflow that based on risk categories for your particular app or company, I could walk through the workflow and see what level of, of authentication you should be using at your company using a very well-respected U.S. standard. 
The point is, my customers have asked me, how strong should our authentication be for 15 years? And I gave them an answer. Yeah, use multi-factor, I guess. Now, I got a standard, a very clear one to help me provide this answer. And I'm trying to push my customers more and more towards supporting FIDO, supporting AAL level three from NIST special vocation 863B. So, you know, I, 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 but FIDO is expensive to implement. It's non-trivial. Yeah. I hear, and there's a lot of, a lot of folks talking about passwordless security, which is mostly nonsense the way a lot of people talk about it. So I try to, I'm keeping away from the whole password list discussion because I don't think we're ready for it yet, even though it's a nice buzzword. So I think the direction should be mature, multi-factor, at least with number generation. At but scale. Really, but really, we should be supporting FIDO device and having an option to roll away from SMS multi-factor. By the way, if you have an app with a lot of sensitive data and you're doing password-only authentication, that's negligence. Come on, people. That's SMS negligence. is good enough, though. SMS is the first that is better than oh. password. Let's talk. Let's see what NIST Special Publication 863B says about this topic. What it says, it says that AAL Level 2, if you're going to support SMS multi-factor, it needs to be your second choice. And there needs to be an alternative to SMS that's stronger or you're not AAL Level 2 compliant. And I agree with that. in In the concept of password only authentication or password and an SMS, I think that's that's the first step of the ladder. Is sufficient? Absolutely not. But is the first step of the ladder? I, I recommend yes. And there is a lot of debate on just SMS authentication. No, there's no there's no debate. Here's the, here's the way. There's no debate. No debate. SMS is vulnerable to to uh, to SIM swapping. It's vulnerable it to malware on your phone, and it's and it, we've had significant attacks against SMS, which is why NIST recommends. Don't use SMS for multi-factor, but they realize that people need to migrate through SMS to do stronger multi-factor. So again, they say you can have SMS and be an AAL2 compliant app if you offer another stronger method besides SMS, and that's the default. So you can do SMS, I agree, but the standard is starting to discourage it and require a bit more than plain vanilla SMS. I think that's reasonable. And, and I agree with you, Francesco. Yeah. I'd rather see someone use SMS multi-factor than not do it at all. The biggest banks in the U.S., they're all still using SMS as a standard. So, come on. It's I'm, not I'm, just a bank in the U.S. <laughs> Europe I'm really as well. Giving you, I know. The banks were, I'm giving you a hard time. I'm, I know you too well. I'm only kidding around. <laughs> but but I, SMS is okay, but please give folks another alternative within your yeah. user provisioning setup. And it's not that complicated, you know. We have standard way to do oh, that. Yeah. If you if you develop an application in AWS or Azure or any other uh, format, you have a service that does that for you. It's like three click of configuration. I know a lot of people who they have only username, password authentication still, but they offer an OpenID Connect or a SAML mm-hmm. integration, and now they can support multi-factor that way. That's I think that's an acceptable way to solve the problem. It's not the best. But it's acceptable. If you're offering it's, federated identity to connect to their identity system or a Google or Facebook login, suddenly we have, you know, we have multi-factor capability without having to implement it. But then all of a sudden you have supply chain issue and pain and growth pain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, Facebook is a dirty word these days. But my, my conjecture is 
you're likely to have a better authentication layer if you federate to Facebook than if you build it yourself from scratch. I'm no Facebook fan, but you know they, they put en- enough hours into their authenticator where it's strong at this point. Yeah, it's, it's at the core of the service. So Google, Facebook, and other form of third-party authentication. And you don't need to manage and, and pass through password in your system. So it's, it's a good and interesting advantage. Yeah, it's all JSON Web Token Exchange and digital signatures and a very mature standard OpenID Connect that usually drives most of that federation yeah. today. It's and, solid. I, and I like and I like that a lot for for not touching the password at all. So even if you get you know something in in your authentication pad, it's still encrypted in a, in a specific way. There are still ways to, to to break it, but I think it's a very mature standard, and I really like it. But on on JWT actually. Why do we still get it wrong, and why is this so complex for developers? It's it's a new pair. It's a new paradigm. New paradigm, right? It's uh, it, it suddenly. So when we were doing session management in normal web app, you know, it took years to figure that out as well, and we did. <laughs> we have really good standards and best practices on how to use a standard session. Jots JSON web JSON web tokens, otherwise known as a JWT, otherwise known as a Jot is a stateless token with using digital signatures to provide integrity so users that we hand a JSON web token to can't modify it or other services can't modify it. And what why it's hard to handle is because now cryptography is part of the picture. We have to do digital signatures, key management, and in a stateless system, doing things like logout or revocation is unfortunately difficult. In a session, web session, I can just say invalidate and that session's gone, but in a JSON web token, I'm not tracking that session. So I have to do revoke lists or other tricks. Then people complain, oh, you're revoke, like Dr. Wetter, Dr. Vetter. He's like, oh, you're you're supporting a revoke list. You're not a real JSON web token system. That's what PhDs get you, right? Give you a, sorry. Sorry, Dr. <laughs> Wetter. Doctor, by the way, I'm giving Dr. I love to give Dr. Wetter a hard time. I don't know why, but he works on test SH, test SSH. This is like a version of SSL Labs in a script that I can use in internal services. And that monster maintains it like on a daily basis. So I like to argue with Dr. Wetter about JSON web tokens. Sorry, doctor. But <laughs> his work, his work on his work on um, TLS uh, assessment as an open source tool is world class, one of the best out there. So I high five Dr. Wetter even though he doesn't like revocation lists because he's he's too strict. I'm more realistic. Well, revocation lists is, is an old and well-tested concept. They're beautiful. You know, I love CA, them. CA has that, you know, we, we've been dealing with revocation lists since forever. It's a well-tested, well-oiled concept. Yeah, CAs have stapling now, have a very performance-friendly way. It's like OCSP stapling as a way to do revoke lists. And it's, it's performance-friendly, it's privacy-centric, it's digital signature based. It's all on the back end. So the original like uh, uh, revoke the CRL lists, we had to move around this huge list that never worked. And then um, just OCSP without stapling, that was that was a privacy leak and easy to, to bypass. But OCSP stapling, the current like revoke standard is it works. It does its job. So we've we've learned to figure it out over three generations. We could do the same thing with JOTS and JSON web token revoke lists. They're built into every gateway and framework in the API world and every cloud service. So it's it's commonly easy. supported. Well, I wouldn't say easy, it's easy. No, no, no. It's supported. not easy. It's hard to support. And you're in a real stateless cluster 
and you're not using gateways, yeah, it gets a little, it does get challenging. It is, <laughs> it's challenging. To, to Dr. Wetter's point, it's challenging and it breaks statelessness. But if you care about security, you got to do it. Brilliant. And what do you think about the, the whole world falling out by free an SSL certificate that we got? I, it didn't really impact. It, my, uh, it impacted the whole world for a day and we moved on. You got to update your certs, people. My cert is updated on a script. I don't update my certs. I run a script every day to do the update when needed. So I don't think about it. I automate, automate, automate everything. No, but it's, it's interesting how the whole world changed by having a reliance on a, on a free certificate service, but it, it, it moved the needle has nothing to do about that service being free. It has to do about a certificate getting out of date and the world not updating it properly after being worn many times. So it's not a, it's like going to a paid authority doesn't fix this. Everyone should use Let's Encrypt, in my opinion. It's a mature authority. You just got to keep your stuff up to date. That's it. And we knew this. We knew this expiration was happening. This was something that was planned and discussed for years. And a lot of big companies missed the ball. And then what happened is services went down, they updated their cert, and everybody was back up right away. You got to keep your certs up to date, people. I'm sorry. That's part of TLS. So I don't think this is a, a let's encrypt problem. This is a general problem with TLS certificate maintenance. Boom. But it's it's interesting how let's encrypt change completely the landscape of certificate, how many services start using or start using encryption or a channel all of a sudden, just because of that. There's no excuse not to use TLS anymore. Let's Encrypt helped helped accelerate the growth of TLS exponential across the web. Yeah. We're going to see a TLS-only web within our lifetime in this cycle, and HTTP will go away. Folks, there's no excuse not to use well-configured TLS. I'd go look at the Mozilla TLS configuration tool in combination with Let's Encrypt and some other automated scripting. And without too much work, you have really decent TLS configuration. Let's do it, folks. Let's do it. And I think that's that's the argument that a lot of people have on, you know, I, I face sometimes the argument of, you know, the service is internal. I don't need to use the additional layer of encryption and certificate. And Francesco, there is no internal. There is no such thing as an intranet. And I like Google standards on this. The Google's API security standards, it's the exact same standard for their APIs, whether it's delivered internally or externally. It doesn't matter. And that's what your standard should be as well. There is no intranet. You're, post, you're pushing services live. You probably want some security on them. Done. End of story. Yeah, no, I think I think we're going into. I mean, if you want to talk about zero trust, we can talk about zero trust. But as you beautiful as as you rightfully said and beautifully said, you know, internal and external, there is not anymore the boundaries. Google paved the way, saying you know, inside and outside for us is is really no difference. When I think of zero trust in the API world, I'm thinking all of my internet services need authentication. They need an active jot. Even multiple microservices down down, a, down an end tier chain of requests, every microservice should require authentication and active jot. And every web service should do access control to make sure the user, that we know who the user is because we're propagating the jot. And then we can go look up the access control rules for that user if necessary. So that's my take on zero trust in the world of API. Every API has strong TLS, Requires a jot for authentication. You got to pass the jot and do a check for <laughs> access control. 
at each individual API layer. Companies that have built that kind of pattern into their system have a much better history of security running that service. That's that's my definition of zero trust in the API world. It's an overloaded term, I know, but there you go. No, but, right now every every vendor in the world uses zero trust, but without I mean zero trust is not a new concept anyway. No, it's not. Twenty we've been we've been doing we've been doing zero trust since the time of Cisco and you know VPN and other stuff. You know, it just not trusting the other stuff that is in the in the other side of the cable. Period. <laughs> as simple as that. But we are we are coming towards an end of time, and we we have a tradition. We have a tradition here that is, uh, you know, we talk about beautiful stuff. We talk about maybe less beautiful stuff. We talk a lot about upsetting. Uh What is the positive message that you want to leave? We have a tradition here to live with a very positive message on cyber life. Anything. We have the tools, techniques, the people, the services the knowledge to do application security well. It's time for us to do it now. And with this word, <laughs> it was ominous rather than positive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm to be more positive. Be more positive. No, but I like, I like how you... security, you don't need to know how to code to be a good security professional. Oh, okay. okay. Heard, oh, that hurt me to say. Okay, I'll tell you this. <laughs> Security professionals, learn how to code and you'll be a better professional. All right, that's not a good message either. I got let me try again. Let me try three. Let me try three. Let me try three. Let me try three. So what do you you asked me to do a, a positive message to end here, right? Our our industry has advanced so much in the last 15 years that we're more prepared than ever to really tackle the problem of application security and affect dramatic positive change for our companies and customers and programming teams that we work for. So now's the time to really to really stretch <laughs> and get to work and, and really help the community of people that need our help as application security professionals and community. I love the conversation, Jim. Jim, if, uh, if people want to find you on LinkedIn, Twitter, websites, where they're going to find you and which conference are you covering next? You can find me at Manicode on Twitter, M-A-N-I-C-O-D-E on Twitter. I'm J Manico, J-M-A-N-I-C-O on LinkedIn. I'm going to I'm I'm back on the conference circuit. I'll be at dozens of conferences around the world in the next couple of months. I'm doing a lot of talks and you know, I've 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 been in hiding a little bit during the corona era. It's over. It's time to get out. So I'm really excited to hit the conference circuit again and spread the word on application security excellence wherever I can. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to, to meet and, and re-meet actually face-to-face at conference at some stage. James, it's been a pleasure. The link for James, where to find James is going to be in the show notes. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure again. And everybody, thank you so much for listening in. Stay safe. Go out and do upsec. <laughs> Aloha. Aloha. Proud to be an Italian, Francesco. <laughs> thank you for having me on your show. Right on, man. See ya. Ciao. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcast and post it on social media tagging Cybersecurity Cloud Podcast for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Discover other episodes at www.cybersecuritypodcast.com. 